Well, to begin, um, as a pastor, I have to tell you, and a parent, I am always worried with the information that we pass down to the future generations. I think we, uh, we believe, I don't think we mean to do this, but we, we think information just naturally transfers as if by osmosis. It just happens that what we learned, our kids learn, and we fail, we've got to also teach those things too. And one of the things the other pastors and I have been convinced of is we need to really give a thorough argument why are the Scriptures so important? Why should you know them? Why should you, why should you allow them to set the course of your life? Part of my concern um, from, from what I pass along is because I think our current culture is awash in what I would call progressive delusion. It's a progressive delusion. It's, it's a mental condition that's not political. It's that we, see the, that we see the world. I believe there's this con- collective acceptance that we believe we are living in the most enlightened era ever. As if because we can take our fingertip and touch a device and get information instantly, we just are smarter than everybody that came before us. We assume brilliance. That we do know more. We're wiser. We're just a little bit better than every generation that came before me. It's called, what I would say, progressive delusion. To, to give you an illustration, let me just um, set up a hypothetical scenario for you. I think this will help understand what I'm trying to communicate. Imagine you and I are in downtown Chicago on the northern side of the loop. I bring you to a coffee shop, and in this coffee shop, there are, it is happening. Business elite are there, the, there's college students there, everybody's mixing and mingling, and as we're sipping in our lattes and frappuccinos, over in the corner sit this group of young hipsters right here. They're awfully loud, you can hear what they're saying, but they're cool, you know, I, it, it just is what the coffee shops are like over there. And here's the conversation, you can hear it. Hey, Drew, look at this Bible my grandma gave me to bring to college. Wow, man, it's old. Yeah, but look at the leather. It's authentic binding. It's totally retro. Yeah, too bad it's useless, though. What do you mean useless? It's my grandma's very own Bible. Look, she dated it on the front, August 28, 1966. Sure, it's ancient, but it means the world to her. Dude, man, it's just a book. 2,000-year-old words no longer have any relevance or meaning in our world. (laughs) Why don't you take a snapshot of it? Maybe you'll get some likes on Instagram if you use the Kelvin filter. It's really a lot cooler. I did make up this dialogue. I thought, you know, it sounded really accurate. But I think this sentiment is accurate. I really do. Many people see the Bible as nothing more than a primitive collection of myths, campfire stories, anachronistic poems and parables. Maybe at one time it helped explain the world, but those people had unsophisticated minds. No longer does it really apply. Case in point, Rob Bell last year was asked about gay marriage. Does he support it? He said absolutely, and here's what he said. When your culture is already there, 
And the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as the best defense they have. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors and they love each other and just want to go through life with someone. Here's what he's saying. Though many people used to find meaning in this book, it should never be a reason to let it get in the way of real life. That's really what he's saying. And that's what a lot of people believe. They really believe that. Sure, this talks about purity, sexual purity. Uh, talks about, you know, kind of seems to say that we were created, not evolved. But those are old words. But do you know Christian history they were not that simplistic of thinkers at all. In fact, historically, Christians have been very thorough in their thought process, very well thought out in their understanding of reality. In my mind, their thinking was much more complex than ours. We think in advertising sound bites. We think with words like awesome, unbelievable, cool. If you read about 100 years ago, they would use actual arguments to make a point. Point one, two, three, four, five, it, as if complex thinking translated. It doesn't too much anymore. Image translates. And back then, people really believed that God spoke directly to mankind through this book. One writer puts it like this Did God really speak? Is every Hebrew and Greek word in the original autographs? which left the hands of the inspired writers a God-chosen word? If so, all other doctrines of the Christian system are shown to be from God. And therefore, they are of vital importance to us in our eternal well-being. What if God really did speak? What if we have in this book our God-chosen words? I love that phrase, God-chosen words. If that's true, then we're dealing with something miraculous, supernatural, otherworldly. That is where the discussion concerning the Bible must begin. It's what scholars call inspiration. That's where I think it begins. In other words, these are God-breathed words, not merely a book of human reason, construct, opinions. And since we believe they are God-breathed words, it changes everything. So let's begin there. Open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. The subject for this week's lesson is inspiration. And we're going to use 2 Timothy 3 as a platform. Throughout this sermon, I'm going to ask you to do something very risky, but I think it's appropriate for the theme. I'm going to ask you to turn to your Bibles a lot. Because we're going to talk about the Bible. And I want you to see with your very own eyes that the Bible actually says these things. It really does. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is writing to his disciple, Timothy. Timothy was going to take over this church. Paul left it to him. Timothy was going to become a pastor of this church. So he's handing things over to Timothy. So Timothy can take teachings to hand them over to other people. And in this passage, Paul is telling Timothy it's not going to be easy. Look at verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3. He begins by saying, 
all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So he's saying, if you really want to live for Christ in this world, it's not going to be easy. People will be against you. That's what persecution means. Keep reading. He says, while evil people and impostors will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise. So he's saying, while the world is falling apart, you don't have to because you've been taught the Scriptures. The Word of God, which as we said last week, it yokes you together with the life of God and makes you strong. And then the verse I want us to really look at is verse 16. It's right here. All Scripture. All Scripture. This, this is why you need to stay in, in the Word. Because all Scriptures God breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why are the Scriptures so powerful? Why will they help you when you're being persecuted? Why will they allow you to stay straight while the world is devolving into wickedness? Because they're God-breathed. Inspiration is where it means God-breathed, from the breath of the living God. But let's make sense of inspiration. We need to ask, first, first of all, what does he mean by all Scripture? What does that mean all? What is that? Is all Scripture, even inspirational writings by a guy named C.S. Lewis, or you know, uh, Jesus Calling? Is that what is all? What is all Scripture? Second thing is how does it work? How does inspiration? How does God's breath come to a page? How does that work? That's strange. And then the third thing we need to ask is why is it given? What is the purpose behind it? These questions need to be answered because there's so much confusion concerning Scriptures. There's this strange idea now that the Bible's just given to ask us questions, not to give us any answers. It's just the opposite. The Word of God is to take a darkness in my mind, a fuzzy thinking, and clarify and give me understanding. That's why Psalm 119 says, Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path, the metaphor is this. I'm living in a dark world. It's confusing. There's a lot of voices. And all those voices make it fuzzy. But I open up this word, and ah, I see the path clearly. So we're going to answer those questions. And we're going to begin with the question, what? What are the Scriptures? And what does it mean, all Scripture? The word Scripture means God's written words, or more, more specifically, His sacred writings. They're holy writings. The best way I like to look at the Scriptures is it's like Route 66. It's God's highway of life. If you veer off it, you go into the wilderness. But you stay on it, you will progress and mature quickly in this world. He directs you where you should go. There will be nice gas stations along the way. But man, go off that highway. Tumbleweeds, scorpions, skeletons, death. Do you like that metaphor? Kind of nice. I kind of like that. But to do that, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6-11. It will explain a little bit 
about what the scriptures are. You can, it's uh, 2 Corinthians is after 1 Corinthians, which is after Romans. Actually, let's go to 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is after Romans, which is after Acts, which is after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the guys who heard good news and they passed it on. That was an old song, Derek. Don't give me that look. All right, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 11. Do you notice in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is talking about his message that he came to proclaim. And he's talking about himself first. And then in verse 6, he's going to talk about the message specifically why it's so different than every other message out there. The essence of its difference. What is it? Verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So he's saying, first of all, this message was a hidden message. It was secret. But it was always there, but it was secret. And we have come to reveal it to you. That's the first thing about scriptures is revel its revelation. It's to make into our minds something we never would have come at until Paul or the other apostles or the prophets came along. It's revelation. Keep reading, verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this because it was hidden. For if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Meaning, if they would have understood it, they would have recognized Jesus was the Messiah. But it was hidden from them. Verse 9, but as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor heard, ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Here's what he's saying. Listen to what one writer said. Just as a person only knows what's in his own heart, so only God knows what's in his own heart. So just as it is impossible for you, knowledge, knowledge, and human reason to discover the inner secrets of someone else, of a fellow man, it is clear that you cannot find out the mind of God by the same methods. The only way a person can come to know the inner heart life of another person is to have that person uncover the secrets of his inner life to him. It is likewise follows that the only way in which a person can know the mind of God is to have God uncover his thoughts to him. So very, very specifically, revelation is God unveiling, revealing his heart to you. I'll, I'll do an illustration. Right now, do you know what I'm thinking about? Do you have any idea? Some people in the first service said circus peanuts. No, no, I'm not, not thinking of circus peanuts. What, what do you think I'm thinking about? He, see, he, Lee is using reason to say I'm thinking about coffee. I am not thinking about coffee. That was a good guess. That was a human invention, but it didn't work. Any other ideas? Any ideas? Some person said you're thinking of karate, because in the first service, T.J. Sutton thinks I look like the karate kid. So he thought I was thinking karate. Other people say I think of Batman, because I look like Batman on that whatever the Batman movie. I disagree. I look like Clark Gable. Anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, I know that's good. 
Here's what I'm thinking about, Steve. I'll tell you exactly, but I have to reveal to you what I'm thinking about. This morning, I was in the bathroom, and I'm looking in the mirror, and on my lapel is this big piece of pink fuzz. It drove me crazy. And I, I was thinking, if I wore a big pink of pink fuzz up here, you guys wouldn't take me serious. So I plucked that pink fuzz, and I put it down the toilet. That's what I was thinking of. Would you guys have any idea that's what I'm thinking of? None. Zero. That's the point. You guys have no idea what's on the heart and mind of God because God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So in order to know what God's thinking, he needs to have the Spirit of God reveal what's on the heart of God to my mind. He has to open up my brain. Without that, I would be clueless. You could look at it like this. Francis Schaeffer paints it like this. Imagine you're sitting in a room. You have a white table, white chairs, two people, you and your best friend. White walls on both sides, white ceiling. That's a closed system. In this closed system, you can talk about sciences, sociology, how we get along, anatomy, how our body works. You can talk about chemistry. Watch, I spit on a wall. It's all science. But you cannot talk about theology. The only way, and this is the way Francis Schaeffer puts it, and I love this illustration of Revelation, the only way I can talk about theology is he opens up a ceiling in the top, and I can see outside and see outside of the closed system. Revelation is breaking into my world through the Spirit of God to reveal the heart and mind of God. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 is talking about. Second thing about the reason why I call Route 66, because when it says also, I just explained Scripture, it's Revelation. The second thing about Scripture, it included that conditional statement, all Scripture. Well, what's the all? In our belief, all includes 66 books of the Bible. There's called two testaments, two witnesses to the life of God on earth that reveal to us special revelation, give a special insight into the ways of God. The first is called the Old Testament. The Old Testament is Genesis to Malachi. Go to Luke 24, 44. This is a really amazing passage. Luke 24, 44. Jesus died and he rose again. And he's walking down this road called to the city of Emmaus. So it's the road to Emmaus. He's got two disciples and they don't know who he is. And, they're, and he's kind of baiting him. He's saying, hey, what's been going on? Oh, you haven't heard? No, I haven't heard nothing. Oh, did you hear about this guy who died and rose again? We thought he was a prophet. So then look at verse 44. Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the Scripture. First of all, this, the verse 45 talks about they were kind of blind to what's going on, so he needed to open them, Revelation. And then right before that, he opened them up to the Law of Moses, the Psalms, and the Prophets. What's that? Law of Moses, first five books. Uh, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, that's the Torah. Then you've got the Psalms, Psalms, or Song of Solomon, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, Song of Song, and the Prophets. Prophets include guys like Samuel, but then you got Isaiah, then you got guys like Malachi. What he's saying is, you see the whole Old Testament? It's me. 
and their holy writings. And he had to open their mind to that. Then you have the New Testament. The New Testament is the second part of Route 66. And it's 66 because there's 66 books total from old and new. The New Testament is Matthew the Revelation. New Testament begins with the birth of Christ. It's the new witness, the new story of God's working. And so what happens, if you go to 2 Peter, a lot of people, we'll get into how they pick these books in a second, but some people really have a problem with Paul, the, the writer Paul, because they think Paul is so different than the red letters. Have you ever heard of the red letters? Red letters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus' words are colored red, and some people are like, those are the only ones that matter. You know, Jesus' words is really the only ones that matter, as if the rest of the black letters in the Bible aren't really from God. But they are, because it's Scripture. It's all God-breathed. It's just as powerful if it's black than if it's red. And so if you have 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says... Um, Peter writes, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom that was given to him. So Paul wrote with wisdom from God given to him. And in verse 16 says, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. So he's saying Paul's writings are, are, are wisdom, is wisdom that has been given to him by God, and they are Scripture. He puts them on par with the rest of the Bible. So you have 66 books in the Old and New Testament, and so when it says all Scripture, that's what it's talking about. So when we say inspired Scripture, we don't mean C.S. Lewis. He does have great writings, even though some people think he's inspired. He's not. Doesn't mean Jesus calling or my utmost for his highest or your best life now or even Good Morning Holy Spirit by Benny Hinn. The only writings are the 66 books that are truly, truly inspired. What I mean by truly is Psalm 19 says all his words are flawless. They're perfect. What about all these other human writings? They're not perfect. There's some good and bad. Paul says hold on to what's good and throw away what's bad. But I'm talking about what's perfect. It's what's in here. All right, so now we're going to say, how does that happen? How did that take place? How does inspiration work? So were men, were they robots? All of a sudden, you know, Paul's kind of walking on the sidewalk, and all of a sudden he gets these glazed eyes. And he wakes up. Oh, the Book of Romans, there it is. Is that how it happened? Or was it like Joseph Smith? And Joseph Smith was in some, some woods in New York. And he saw this gleaming angel named Moroni. And he said, Joseph, come here. Dig underneath that rock. And he dug underneath that rock. And there was this box of stone. And he pulled out the box of stone and he lifted the lid of the box of stone. And in that box of stone was a gleaming golden book of Egyptian hieroglyphics that couldn't be read by normal man. So the angel gave him a stone, a seeing stone. And he looked in that seeing stone and he 
wrote down the writings of the man named Moore. Moore man. Is that how he got these books? From some ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics? How did we get these books? Inspiration is very specific. First we're going to talk about it generally, and then we're going to talk about it specifically. Go to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. He's going to talk about the process, generally speaking, how God breathed words. And here's what it says. Starting in verse 20 of 2 Peter 1, verse 20, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Some people think this means that, well, you read it this way, I read it this way. That's not what it's talking about own private interpretation. Somebody gets this new weird revelation that nobody ever had before. He kind of just thought it up. Like, I just have, I have this inspired thing. It's not like that. This is how it happens. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The metaphor is, here's men are like a, a sailboat, and they're on this on the sea, the Holy Spirit blows and he uses them to produce the scriptures. He moves them along. So here's what one writer wrote. It's a commentator Weist. He says, the Spirit of God is the agency rather than the agent. The men speak. The Spirit impels. So the men speak. They're the ones that speak. They're the ones that write. And the reason they spoke and the reason they wrote is because the Spirit of God impelled them to. While the writers were speaking clearly about their situation, they did not know the full implication of what they were writing. So the Spirit moved them to write, usually out of a current need, and had more purposes behind it. And then after they wrote what they wrote down, they recognized that God moved them to write that, and their readers recognized it as well. Rene Pache says this, The Lord was able to combine the individuality of the authors, their consciousness, their memory, their emotions, with the material he was causing them to produce. So he used the man, who he was, in his circumstance, to write what God wanted communicated. I'll give you a perfect example. This, I think, is the funniest book in the Bible, the book of Amos. It's in the Old Testament. I like to explain Amos is a hillbilly fig farmer, kind of like a guy from Kent City going to the big city. I think Amos kind of talk like that, a little bit. Amos is right after Joel and Hosea and Joel in the Old Testament. And I want you to go to Amos chapter 4. And you'll see how Amos, as he was, was used by God to preach what God was thinking and feeling. So Amos 4.1, here's what he says. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring, that we may drink. Here's what he's saying. He's not writing the cows. He's writing the fat women, is what he's saying. And he calls them cows. That's what he's doing. Don't blame me. That's what he's doing. And the cows of Bashan, because Bashan was this fertile area where cows would graze and they'd get fat and they would eat and they were rich 
And then they'd go to their couches and they'd tell their husbands, hey, honey, get me some wine. All the meanwhile, they didn't pay any of their farmers, any of their slaves that they owned, and they crushed the needy. And so here's Amos using the vernacular of a farmer, because you could hear a farmer going, those fat women are like cows out there. He's using them, who they are, to communicate what God feels. He's mad. So he uses the personality of Amos to communicate that. He chose Amos to go and write because he knew he would perfectly express in his person how God himself was feeling. It's the incarnational side of the scriptures. God uses men and women to communicate how he feels. God uses a preacher to communicate to a culture he understands with the truth that God gives him. So let's get specific. How does this work? Go to 1 Corinthians again. Remember 1 Corinthians before Romans, before Acts, before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who heard good news and he passed on. Yes, Derek, I said it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I want you to look at 12 and 13. He's going to tell us how he does this, how inspiration happens. Verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He says we have words that are given to us and taught to us by the spirit, it's not based out of wisdom of humanity, but it's by the Spirit of God so we can communicate to spiritually inspired men. So the point is, first of all, there's two ways this happens. It's not a product of human reason or scientific investigation. It's not. Scriptures were not the outworkings of human brilliance, scientific study. They didn't come from a man's heart, his heart. I just feel I've got to write this. I'm just a passionate person. It's not that. The Spirit moved on men from above. Remember, like Revelation opening to the soul, where all of a sudden, oh, oh. Secondly, when the Spirit moved the man, he helped him write the very words he wanted him to write, which became the words of God. As one theologian said, the writers came to the truth through the agency of the Holy Spirit, moving and disclosing truth to the writer, while at the same time he helped the writer, through his own known vocabulary, choose the correct and exact word. Kind of like when Amos is saying, how can I say these women are just greedy? They're consumers. They could care a lot. Cows! Abation! Just like that. And so it came to his own vocabulary. So that means the very words written are exactly what God wanted written. One writer says, As led by the Holy Spirit, they searched their vocabularies for the exact word which would adequately express the truth they wished to record. Thus, the Holy Spirit allowed the writers the free play of their personalities, vocabulary, and training, while at the same time guiding them to make an infallible record of truth infallibly revealed. What's interesting is the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the New Testament's written in Greek. When you read the book of Luke, the Greek of Luke is far superior to the Greek of John. 
The Greek of John is not as pedantic, which means the Greek of Paul is very pedantic. He's, he's, a, he's a scholar, so you can tell he's trained in a legal profession. So you can see that God used that man's personality in a way he wrote to be used as Scripture. So the original Hebrew and Greek documents that were first written were perfect. We're going to get later into our messages on preservation, but for now I'm just talking about inspiration. How did they come down? Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, men wrote it, the Spirit impelled. I want to touch on something that's kind of a sidetrack. Because one of the big questions that's often asked is how did the church decide on these books, these 66 books? A lot of people will say, you know how they decided on these books? Some grumpy old white men wanted to control the world. So they picked the books. So they could have all the power. It's called deconstructionism. It's called the hegemony of European white males. So these 66 books, are be, they're a human invention. But, let's, but you have to ask it like this. Were the 66 books declared as God's word or were they discovered to be God's word? There's a huge difference and you need to understand it. It's a big deal. Because if you, people can just say these were uh, just that community at the time wanted those books. So what they're saying, they declared them to be, then it's easy to say it can't be God's word. But if they're discovered to be God's word, it makes a world of difference. So I'm going to bring you back to an, another hypothetical scenario. Let's say you and I just got, got done with our frappes and lattes in that coffee shop. Remember we were at that coffee shop? I asked you to get in the car and I want to go cave exploring and I bring you to a cave. You're not done with your frappe, so you say, can I bring the frappe along? Sure, okay. So we go into the cave, and on the cave wall, we get in, it's dark, we turn on the light, and you see this piece of gold on the cave wall. And so you yell, you declare, look, I found gold. Does that mean it's gold because you declared it's gold? No. You have to test it to see if the properties are actually gold. So in a sense, gold isn't declared, it's discovered. If it's truly gold, it was gold before you even found it. You just discovered it. Gold will always be gold. And when you finally find it, you can test it to see if it's gold. Just because you declare it's gold doesn't make it's gold. It could be fool's gold. Or it could be the kid that went before you, he just spray painted that to fool you. So you don't know. In the same way God's Word works, it isn't declared to be God's Word by the church. It was found to be God's Word. It was discovered to be God's Word by specific proofs. We call this canonicity. The canon. These 66 books are called the canon. What's very interesting is this word canon means it's a measure, a, 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 straight, a straight ruler. In a way, that's why they would call a cannon a cannon, because you have a straight barrel that would extend long, so it could shoot a bullet straight. So here, canonicity means the rule or measure that's used to decide what truly is to be considered the inviolable truth of God. That means the incorruptible, the perfect truth of God. And not just the arbitrary will and opinions of man. Is there a standard? Is there a proof? And I'll just go through it real quickly with you but you can read it for yourself, but know that we just don't come by these books because a group of white men said so. The first one is A. A stands for, 
Is there an authoritative source to the book? The Old Testament needed to have a prophet, a guy that God spoke to that spoke to the people, who said, thus saith the Lord. But did you know being a prophet was not a good, was a very dangerous thing? Like, not, you really didn't want to be a prophet. The, the reason why is very simple. If you're a prophet and you predict something, do you know what the, you know what the consequence is if you give a bad prophecy? They stone you. It really wasn't a good deal. Also, if you are a prophet, and it says in Jeremiah, if God reveals the Word of God to you and you don't correctly communicate it, you will be humiliated in front of everybody. But if you got a vision and you correctly communicated it, nine times out of ten as a prophet, you would not be liked. You wouldn't be. Jeremiah was thrown in a pit an awful lot. So I'll just say a prophet wasn't, it wasn't a job that everybody just picked up and just started prophesying. It was dangerous. The New Testament, you have what are called apostles. Apostles are sent ones that Jesus sent directly. In Ephesians 2.20 and Hebrews 2.4, it says how Jesus' teaching is the foundation and then the superstructure is the teaching of the apostles. Everything we have is built on by the apostles. What about Luke? Somebody would say. Well, Luke traveled with Paul for many years, so a lot of people say Luke is Paul's gospel. What about Mark? Mark wasn't an apostle. Mark was the nephew to Peter and traveled along with Peter for a long time, so people say the book of Mark is Peter's gospel. But all of them are associated somehow to an apostolic being sent. Secondly, you have the B, ABCs of canonicity. B is biblical content. Each of the inspired books of the Bible were recognized to be consistent in their teaching, specifically the redemptive narrative that man was lost, God sent a Savior to save them. Also, when it was being used, it was powerful. The content was both consistent and powerful. Just powerful. We're actually, in Jeremiah's day, when he would preach, God said, nobody will stand against you. And they weren't able to. In the New Testament, in Thessalonians, Paul said, when we preach the word of God to you, you left your idols. You just dropped them. So it's powerful. Some people ask, well, what about like the Gospel of Thomas or Barnabas or Judas? First of all, somebody asking that really has never read those before because if you read them, you'll realize they are silly. I'll just say that. They're very silly books. Secondly, you don't understand the way Gnostic Gospels were presented. Gnostic Gospels were Gospels that tried to be like real Gospels. They were dated two to three hundred years later where the writers weren't alive, Thomas and Barnabas, but also they're strange. They would try to use names like Thomas and Barnabas and Judas to try to think that, oh, look, the Christians will read it because it has a name like a disciple on it. But truthfully, if you read it, it's weird. It's mystical. It paints Jesus as this Hindu guru who doesn't necessarily believe heaven was really even tangibly real, but it was in your mind. All I'm saying is if you read it, you'll note the difference between fool's gold and real gold. It's vastly different. C is church recognized. The early church 
would read it and say, this is clearly God's word, and they'd pass it along, and that, those were the ones where copies would be made and they'd be transmitted. The church saw that the writings were both historically true and accepted as gold, true truth. Go to 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's right after, right before Timothy, right after Colossians. General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Colossians. Then you get to Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2, verse 13. See, and I'm teaching you how to use your Bible. This is so interactive. I'm going to charge you more for it, too. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. And Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as, as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he's saying you knew when you received the word, you knew it was the word of God. When I was at Moody Bible Institute, I took a class on comparative religions. I wanted to know what the other religions taught and read. So we'd go visit a mosque and read the Quran. We had to study the Quran. We'd go visit a Hindu temple and a Buddhist temple, and so we'd just read the Bhagavad Gita and the other writings. And before, I just wanted to read it so I could talk intelligently about it, but when you read them, I'm just telling you. And I'm not saying because I'm a Christian. I'm just telling you, when you read them, you know the difference between a historical... Luke says, Luke says, everything I've compiled historical documents where he names historical people as compared to Bhagavad Gita where it's kind of like reading fortune cookies. It's weird. Just telling you. But read it for yourself. And when you do, you'll come to the conclusion that Charles Spurgeon did. Listen to what he said. The Word of God's like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. And if you notice, he didn't put an S on the lions because that would be a whole other category. Not much power there. Anyhow, I do want to address one more uh, complaint by many skeptics at this point. They will often point out that everything I've said is circular reasoning. I've heard one writer say, circular arguments are not helpful. For example, the Bible is divinely inspired because it says it is. Any book could say that. Here's the problem with that complaint. Do you know most every argument from anybody circular? It always is. If you go to an evolutionist, every one of their arguments is circular. Well, I believe in evolution. Why? Because Darwin wrote it in his theory. Well, where did Darwin come with his theory? Because he noticed that things evolved. So evolution proved true to him, so he wrote it. So how do you know he's true? Because of the evolutionary evidence. Why do you believe in the evolutionary evidence? Because guys like Charles Darwin wrote about it. It's circular. You, everybody has circular reasoning. Muslims do. Everybody does. Atheists do. The only difference is, you've got to ask the question in the reasoning, what is the character and the behavior of the person teaching, and what is the, what is the character of the writing itself? For instance, the Bible does declare itself as the Word of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, 3,000 times it says, Thus saith the Lord. However, the Bible also says, If anybody bears false witness... They are sinners, and they should be killed. So, if I have a book where 3,000 times I say God told me to say this, but if you, if you lie, you should die, it's 
kind of contradictory. For instance, in Isaiah 59, he writes to the people and says, God's coming in wrath because every man is a liar. So is Isaiah lying? You said yes, he is lying? <laughs> it's true. It is true, right, Tanya? It is true. See, she recognizes Scripture. Good work, Tanya. So we have what? We have how. Now why? Why did God give us Scriptures? 2 Peter 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. Use it. That's why it's given to us. To be used. It has the power to change and transform people to be like him. I love this passage by James. Look at what James says about Scripture. Go ahead and hit it. It says, anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking it away in a way and immediately forgets what he looks like. Do not deceive yourselves. Do what it says. The Scriptures are given to us so we can look at our souls like a man looks in the mirror. And it helps us realize what we need to change. So it's used for correction, training, teaching. It's also used to encourage us. When everybody else thinks we're ugly and we look in the mirror and goes, really, I look like Clark Gable. See, the mirror can help you out. When you look in Scripture, man, everybody thinks I'm a fool, but God loves me. Use it. For just as God breathed into Adam and made him alive, his breath is still breathing through his words to make you more of the person he wants you to be. Let me say that again. For just as God breathed into Adam and made him alive, his breath is still breathing through his words to make you more of the person he wants you to be. These 66 books are an amazing gift. Use it. I want to end with a warning, and I want you to see the warning for yourself. Open up to the, the Amos guy again, that Kent City guy, and go to chapter 8. Remember, Amos is after Joel, which is right after Hosea. Amos chapter 8. And it's based on this, what God freely gave, if it is a gift, what God freely gave, he can just as easily take away. Listen to what Amos says in Amos 8, 11 and 12. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on a land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. He's almost saying that the word of the Lord is a not having the word of the Lord is a worse thing than not having rain and food. Right now, you have it. Don't lose it. And just my suggestion, hide it in your heart so you'll never lose it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing book. Thank you for how clear it is and how it um, is powerful and it's given to us to be used. Help us, God, to use it. Again, God, we've been blessed because we've had your word today and we thank you. In Christ's name we pray.